Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Welcome to The Hilo, the weekly current affairs and pop culture podcast brought to you by Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. Sorry we missed last week. We always endeavour not to miss an episode unless we're on a seasonal break or maternity leave. But we're really dedicated at the moment to trying to bring you the most uplifting, positive, diverting, often quite silly podcast that we can. And due to some very sad news that I had last week, I was uh, not in a position to do that. But we are very much endeavouring to do that for you today. And here to make that happen is Dolly Alderton with a hangover on her seventh cup of tea. (laughs) Listen, my darling girl, I've got a nugget of pure, unadulterated joy for you from the archives. It's re-emerged on Twitter. Um, It is a vintage. It's a 2010 vintage. Slips right down. It's a lovely, full-bodied news story. Here we go. Gordon Brown is reportedly weaning himself off his four Kit Kats a day habit and is now eating nine bananas to get fit for the election. Mr Brown's wife, Sarah, is said to be responsible for the new dietary fad, having persuaded the 58-year-old to ditch his favourite Kit Kats. The PM is reported to have ordered staff to leave a giant bowl of bananas in his study and he eats them during meetings. Mr Brown's spokesperson said the Prime Minister has always taken the view that a balanced diet is very important. Sean Porter from the British Dietetic Association urged Mr Brown to curb his intake and to replace them with other fruits for a more balanced diet. She said, there is a lot of fibre in bananas. A lot of volume in means a lot of volume out. (laughs) Two things immediately spring to mind here, which is that I truly can't imagine what one must feel like after nine bananas. It's a filling fruit. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing is that anyone tuning into that podcast and not listening to the first 60 seconds will really have thought that we've lost the plot as a a, a contemporary news podcast reporting on the Prime Minister, Gordon Brown. I think that would be like such a me thing to do to just forget that Gordon Brown is no longer our Prime Minister. Oh, I miss Gordy. I miss him. From Gordon Brown to Lizzo, a massive apology for saying that you could never get your flute out at a house party. That's not a euphemism. Um, obviously, it is possible to jam on the flute. Indeed, Lizzo is queen of the flute jamming. Woo! I love Lizzo. And you're damn right, she should have been name-checked when we were talking about the flute. And I love that song. I would say that Lizzo is probably not your average flautist. 
I would say she's the exception, not the rule when it comes to when it comes to vibes. Okay, so your next challenge, dear Hilo listeners, is to find me someone as cool as Lizzo jamming on a clarinet. And the week after that, I would like a uh, oboe. I feel like a bassoon is a bit easy. Do you know what? I'd like to see someone jamming on on a cello because at school, the cello orchestra solo was the one that, that was always the most sort of ploddy, wasn't it? Well, actually, Dolly, check out the cellist uh, Shaker Canamason, who I've been listening to on Spotify just this week. He won the um, Young Musician Award in 2016, and he also played at uh, Meghan and Harry's wedding. Did he now? So there you go. There's a funky cellist for you. Clarinet, still not sure. Um, Panda, would you like to hear my favourite bollocks non-fact about COVID-19? I mean, there aren't many of those going around right now, so yes. Okay, so I want to make it very clear before everyone gets their ninnies in a twist that this is obviously, my friend read this or heard this and it's obviously not going to happen in its bollocks, but I just think it's interesting to think about. She heard the next easing of social distancing could be that every person is allowed to choose two households of up to five people per household and they're the only people you're allowed to see. The, but this, that's not a conspiracy theory. Gabby Hinsliff wrote about that for The Guardian. It's called like pod living or something. They're, oh, so it's actually a thing. Oh, I thought it might just be one of no. those like WhatsApp rumours. Well, I mean, I, d- I don't know if it's... I actually haven't done enough research into it to know if it's realistic. But what... It's actually an interesting concept as if, you know, it's it's too difficult uh, to keep people uh, and, and too dangerous mentally and, you know, lots of other reasons for people to be in a house on their own. But equally, we can't go back to being in really crowded spaces and having, you know, loads of people jammed into a pub. Otherwise, well, we know what we know what could happen. So this was a sort of theory, I think, um, about how it can kind of be the halfway house. So you socialise with the same five people for a bit. Which I think sounds great, but can you imagine the selection process of that? How potentially heartbreaking that could be. And actually I was thinking the people who would be fine and would benefit the most if this ever came into play would be graduates, like people in their early 20s who live in house shares. Because if you had like, if you lived in a house share and then you chose two, like, top-tier house shares of people, that's, like, 15 people hanging out. It's much harder for you than me because I'm just thinking of your gal group that I could name off by heart, and there's there's more than five of you in that. I know. I know. Not everyone would I, I think I think we'd have to just go rogue, and I think I would just... We'd have to not none of us choose each other and instead I'd have to like I don't know ring someone who I got off with in freshers week or something just go completely go completely off script is that that's actually a good idea for a tv show I've so I found that article that I was just mentioning um that Gabby Hensliff talks about and actually this idea came from Professor Stefan Flash epidemiologist and mathematical modeler at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and he calls it contact clustering. So it's mm. a thing. I would choose 
the household of sister one and the household of sister two. I wouldn't even get a look in then. No, I'd choose you for work purposes. Unless I was still down in Devon, that could be kind of nice. Listen to me doing a pitch. Don't worry about it. Don't worry, it's fine. (laughs) I'd absolutely love to be where you are right now. I have got our first coronavirus-themed dolls polls. Products that are suddenly interesting during a lockdown. Change in online interest in selected products over the past 30 days. Charlie, can you guess what number one is that has increased by 725% in purchase? Yes, that's a whopping figure. Whopping figure, CJ. I'm bearing in mind these are products, so not kind of streaming services or anything. Uh, Toilet roll would be the obvious guess. Toilet roll doesn't even get a look in. Panda, do you want to guess? Um, all I can think of is like VHS players, but I don't know why anyone would be buying VHS player. <laughs> Sa- sand pits for grown-ups? <laughs> no, sadly not. Number one at 725% increase is, Charlie, we know you did this, dumbbells. <laughs> Number two is increased by 532%. These are enormous figures. Vitamin C gummies. Mm, mm, that's very sensible I'm not taking any extra vitamin C well that's very sensible in at number three almost too sensible I think 516% increase powdered milk yes my mum used to keep that when we were younger well that's in case you can't get to the shops for your cup of tea it's not very nice this is the nuttiest one I think 379% increase in B days Now, what is going on there? Absolutely obsessed with that. It's so 1980s. Yeah. And they're not cheap. They take up a lot of space. And why, if you're spending all your time at home rather than getting all chafy and sweaty running around town, would you need to do a bot wash? And what's wrong with the shower, which you're never far from? Yeah, I would think this is the time where you could ease off the bot wash washing actually. your bottom oh good god oh good god everyone's staying pretty clean bummed aren't they at the moment no one's having that much fun <laughs> well i'm i have to say i i i feel sorry for devon as a whole really that they <laughs> but why as you host said, if such every... a grubby gusseted <laughs> oh my god i i think i know what this is actually i remember reading that and i think this has just coincided with the lockdown But I remember reading that there's been a massive increase in people buying like retro style bathroom suites. Like that's an interiors look that's come back in. So people are buying bidets, not even necessarily to use, but just to get that look in their bathroom. Under that comes bread maker, external monitor, Mm. freeze dried food, mouse for your laptop. Interesting mouse. Yes, of course. Uh, I read today, and I love that this made the news because it is a very, very small statistic that sales in egg cups have gone up by six percent. Egg cups for for doing dippy eggs. Yes, but only six percent. But it made it still made a bulletin. <laughs> Look, that is heartbreaking news in these times. So, Dolly, one in three Britons say they are drinking less alcohol than before the lockdown. This is according to YouGov. And one in five 
are drinking more. Do these statistics surprise you? Wait, let me just try and get my head around that. So one in three are drinking less alcohol. One in five yeah. are drinking more. Sounds like one of those trick maths questions. I remember my dad used to do them when he's like, add add 100 to number four, take away eight, times it by three, and what are you left with? But basically, I think what that means is less people are drinking more. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's what it means. Uh, that's definitely not ringing true in in my <laughs> life. Um I'm not only hungover, but a wine delivery arrived <laughs> as we started recording. <laughs> not to blame the sea, but I've sort of thrown myself into this, you know, like fishwife Drinking. sort of. Well, I just every night I sit outside and I just watch the sea. And when you're watching the sea, you know, you can just a bottle just dwindles down very fast. And then before you know it, you're singing very out of tune covers of uh, Pandora and Ollie's wedding song and sending it to them via voice note. I was so happy for that. So happy. I wish there's a way of um, saving them to your camera roll. Maybe you could... Oh, can you make me a mixtape? Of me singing drunkenly into voice notes. You sing beautifully. Yes, I would like a mixtape. Thank you. Do you know what else I also like? Stanley Tucci making a martini. Have you seen this? Yeah. In case anyone has missed the world's most fancied man making a Quarantucci, which is his cocktail that he has at five o'clock every day, you can watch it on the interweb. I'll link it in the show notes. And uh, I'll just play you a little bit here. What you want is a double shot of gin. Uh, if you don't like gin, you can use vodka and maybe you could just lace it with gin. Just put a little gin on the top just to give that little bit of flavor if you like a shot of sweet vermouth if, if you can find a good sweet sweet vermouth that's great and then a single shot of campari made in milan there will always and forever be a touch of the nigel about stanley tucci for me for sure for sure. I got lost down a Google hole looking at clips of my favourite Nigelisms. And I want to know what yours is. Mine is, what a sad little person. That was my favourite one as well, but great minds. I also liked, did you know the main ingredient in corn chowder is cellulite? <laughs> um, he was, however, reprimanded for shaking his Negroni. I know diddly squat about cocktails, but apparently that's a bit that's a bit controversial. One cocktail critic said he bruised it to death. Oh, for God's sake. I mean, I thought it looked chic as shit. I love the bit when he deadpans that him and his wife buy their oranges pre-sliced all the way from California. <laughs> it's a very I loved how mad so. Twitter was going over his biceps. He looked fabulous. He is fabulous. Um, I've got some other quite fun things for you as well. Uh, a bakery in Finland um, was really struggling, you know, during the pandemic, like lots of shops. And so she had the novel idea of um, creating cakes in the shape of toilet roll. They're made out of oat batter, 
passion fruit mousse and white fondant. And it's been an absolute game changer for our business. Oh, that also sounds like very delicious. They literally look, I'm looking at a picture. I'll try and remember to put it on the Hilo's Twitter. It looks like Let a Let me see. Roll. Put it in the house party screen. Yeah, yeah, that really does look like a Luros. It's a bog bake. Okay, and you'll also like this. <laughs> I read this in a letter to the Times. The first recorded use, so this is Sheila Taylor. I'm obsessed with the letters from people who write to newspapers. They're far more interesting often than the newspapers themselves. So this is Sheila Taylor. She wrote into the Times uh, about the first ever use of the word fuck. And I thought you'd like this because you are uh, potty-mouthed. Um, so Sheila writes Melissa Moore in her book Holy Shit A Brief History of Swearing God I love the sound of that book quotes a late 15th century poem written by the Carmelite monks of the town of Ely put in modern English it reads the monks are not in heaven because they fuck the wives of Ely wow what an interesting fact do you think that you'll do what I'll inevitably do, which is to remember half that story and make up the rest. So it will become like 15th century nuns in Cambridgeshire. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That is the entire backbone of of all my anecdotes and facts. It's like something I heard and can sort of half recall and then a lot of old guff that I think might make it a bit more sprucey. I read the other day that 85% of all statistics are made up on the spot. But obviously the gloriousness of that is that that statistic itself is no doubt made up on the spot. <laughs> I've got another story of cheer for you, Panda. Demi Moore and Bruce Willis, now divorced, were married for 13 years, are having a right old laugh, quarantining together with their three kids and I just think it is so gorgeous and a little bit sexy and fit when divorced couples get on that well. I just he, love it. He's married, though. So is she yeah. there as well? Are they all- no, so she was meant to go and, and they're all at Bruce Willis's house. And she was meant to go. She was meant to be locking down with them. And then she had some sort of like very strange accident that meant she's now in the hospital. She had to go to hospital and now has to quarantine on her own for a bit. But I think the view is that she joins them or that they were they were going to be together. I just think it's like the older I get when I hear stories of divorced couples being like just fucking chill and lovely to each other. I just think it's like gorgeous behaviour. Amazing. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I still need to read her autobiography which is an absolute riot of a read, I've heard. Well, do look up the photos of the Moore Willis clan uh, locking down together because they're all wearing matching pyjamas and having a lovely time. And I think that's like great, great breakup goals for all of us. All wearing matching pyjamas, that's taking it quite far, isn't it? I know. It? I know. You and I your estranged it. husband not only having to bed down together for six weeks, but start wearing the same night garb. <laughs> I'm not even wearing the same night garb. I want to know, did you watch the One World Together at Home concert? I absolutely loved it. It made me feel, God, that feels a long time ago now. It made me feel so great. Stevie Wonder singing Lean on Me was incredible. 
That's just FYI for listeners. Another song that I've drunkenly covered and sent to Pandora via voice note in the last seven days. I didn't hear that. I really want to watch that. Oh, so moving. Take a little listen. We know that there's always tomorrow. Lean on me when you're not strong. And I'll be your friend. I'll help you carry on. I only tuned in because I wanted to see the Rolling Stones. So I watched the Rolling Stones give, I think, like, actually a pretty great performance. And then I switched off. I absolutely loved Charlie Watts playing the air drums. So did I. (laughs) Also, I've actually screenshotted it for you so that we can talk about how lush all of their, not sitting rooms, drawing rooms are. Yeah, I'm looking now. There's a lot of panelling there. There's a lot of panelling. luxury. Yeah. I think Mick was looking pretty, pretty fucking good. Don't you think? He sounded great. I think he looked really good. He looked in tip-top condition. They all looked great. And as I said, I think their interiors looked just even more fabulous. Because look, there's a... So Ronnie's got a palm tree. Ronnie, Ronnie's letting the side down slightly. His house is looking a little bit sort of nutty woman on come dine with me. Yeah, it's a bit more dishevelled, isn't it? Whereas Mick and Keith have got these, like, very expensive looking, don't they? Like, lovely velvet curtains. It's just incredibly plush. They've gone for it in the digs. And it's a little bit like watching... It's like one of the best bands to ever exist crossed with home improvements or, like, interiors, (laughs) desirable interiors... For you dot com. I also love that Keith has got a drink in the foreground that looks like a beer. Just like, don't drop the ball on the old personal brand, Keith. Just keep it, keep it up in the air. <laughs> oh, I thought it was a gin and tonic. Do you think it's a beer? I think it looks like a beer. Because they're quite shishy now, aren't they? I imagine they're more with a gin and tonic than I do with a, a beer. Yeah, I mean, I think he'll probably drink what whatever's in the fridge my bay i found it incredibly moving um i absolutely loved how many people got involved um a very sexy couple called sean mendes and camilla cabello who are young pop stars dolly um we are a little too late i think Uh, sorry who are young pop stars dolly they are ridiculously attractive and have incredible voices anyway i gave myself a hangover i enjoyed it so much (laughs) did you see elton john playing his piano in his garden no was that towards the end i don't know i literally just i just turned on to see the rolling stones and i turned off but the reason i bring it up is i was listening to the latest episode of the adam buxton podcast with tash dimitriou who i have decided is the funniest human being alive her last episode we talked about as well was just such a good mm. episode of um, the Adam Buxton podcast. This latest one is so funny. And they talk about the fact that Elton John, for some reason, decided to sort of not, to like kind of freestyle the lyrics in that kind of annoying way that like very big rock stars and pop stars sometimes do. And listening to their impression... <laughs> of Elton John singing I'm Still Standing at that concert is so 
funny. And then I went to watch the original performance and they've got it so bang on. So I'm going to insert, first of all, Elton John's performance and then Tash Dimitri and Adam Buxton doing an impression of his performance. You can never know what it's like. Your blood like when it freezes just like ice That the cold will only light to shine from you You wind up like the wreck you hide behind that mess you use And get the things through will never win Look at me, I'm coming back again Got a taste of love and a simple You need to know how to stand it You just fade away He didn't say the, the letter S once And yet the song he sang was still standing <laughs> It was so weird. Because also when he spoke, I was like, oh, Elton's in good health. Like, he seems, sounds really clear and fresh and healthy. Yeah. And then he's like, me like standing. <laughs> me and I stand. And I can't stop standing. And I like to stand. Actually, I'm going to do you. I'm going to uh, sing it over a piano. I've downloaded a backing track. Oh, great. You can even know what it's like. You feel like when it seems that you like ice. The cold, the lonely, that the giant bamboo. Wind up like the red kuha behind the man. <laughs> I feel quite bad laughing and I can't sing for shit, but <laughs> it is absolutely extraordinary. And I think if it had anything to do with his health, then of course it would be horrible. But as Tash says, he's in like rude health. Um, he's just trying out something a bit funky, I guess. <laughs> He was Do you trying think he was just trying something, something a bit groovy. I, I think I think that's the bottom line. That's what it was. Maybe it was a bet. Maybe another high-profile musician had said, "Listen, I will give you fifty quid. I think it was fifty. I will give you fifty quid if you can sing still standing without the S's or what other letters were consciously missing without any English words." Maybe it's- Maybe without any consonants, only vowels. If you can sing still standing using only vowels, I will give you £50. And do you know what? He probably thought, Dolly, that's worth it for 50 quid. He needs 50 quid. He needs someone to buy him 50 quid. God love him. Who do you think had to move the piano into the garden and then back again? I did think that. I did think that. <laughs> Old David Furnish. <laughs> do not think it was Elton John himself, bless him. There have been quite a few pieces about the micro-trends of lockdown. Have you seen any of these? No. Tell me, what are they? Okay, so according to Vox Media, they include Dalgona coffees. Now, I have seen these making the rounds. They look very complicated, though. A complicated coffee. Complicated coffee, You have to do, like, (laughs) loads of stuff to it. Zoom (laughs) gatherings. Yes, obviously. Uh Uh-huh. Had my first family Zoom on Sunday, which was hysterical it the camera was positioned beautifully up my mother's look i'm gonna do it for you up that the nostrils my, that was yeah, my mum the, the whole way that's the classic that's the classic mum posture on the old video call yeah the the nostrils uh yeah. baking bread yep yeah, seen a lot of that have you done any of that no i haven't done any of that you know for the first time in my entire life cooking is like my favorite activity in the world just a bit bored with it now. Yeah, I think that's probably quite a common sentiment, isn't it? I yeah. definitely haven't done this one. I don't think you have natural wine. No. Why do you have to choose this time to drink natural wine? I have categorically not done this. The 10-day push-up challenge. <laughs> no, no, I have not been partaking in that. OK, here are some from Grazia. 
and the piece was entitled Are You a Lockdown Cliché? A Zoom Call. Mm-hmm. An online yoga class. Yep. <laughs> Have you muted the neighbourhood WhatsApp group? No, bless them. I like to see what they're chit-chatting about back in Camden. A jog for two? No. Attempting TikTok? Absolutely not. Tiger King? Yes, begrudgingly. Insta-baking? Covered this one, didn't we? No, haven't done that. Indie food on tap? What is indie food? So it would be like getting like a fruit and vegetable box from Abel and Cole, is that one? And then like yeah. a microbrewery delivery and then like your beef from somewhere else. Basically spending loads of money on really nice food, I think what that means. So it means not doing a supermarket shop, which is, that's almost a full-time job, I think, not leaving your house and gathering only indie yeah. food. I mean, it sounds lovely and really supportive, but I'd say that's quite niche. Now listen, there's one more in the lockdown cliche list. The chain letter. Oh God, I'm up to my tits in can you? Can you imagine if, are you, if you received one being like, hey, thought we'd do a family round robin. Be like, really? Everyone having a family round robin of what they've been up within the confines of their own home? No, the chain letters that I've been getting are, are very sweet in sentiment. It's just, I just don't, I've just, I don't really want to partake in them where it's like, please, please write a poem, please, please pass on a poem or, or pass on a recipe. They're really, really nice idea, but I've just got so many of them. I would just be sitting writing emails all day if I responded to them. I get about 10 a day from my parents. My mum sent one which made me laugh saying, watch when you have a spare 45 minutes. Oh my God. It's like a really long long time to set aside for an email and I don't I don't you know I don't know if I want to pledge 45 minutes toward this I don't know what's in it Jess Cartner Morley wrote for the Guardian about perfecting your zoom groom in the one hand she wrote your friends and colleagues really do not want to see your untrimmed nostril hair on the other looking too radiant seems somehow slightly bad form I'm really not sure Anyone on this house party call right now is at risk of looking so radiant it might be bad form. Actually, CJ, sorry. CJ's looking so radiant it's definitely bad form. In the absence of being able to get a haircut, she says, I do have thoughts on set design and lighting. Your laptop should be elevated at least two coffee table books or four September issues of Vogue above tabletop height or the camera angle will be a shocker. Second, do as Tom Ford suggests and position a table lamp just under your laptop on the side that highlights your good side. Everybody has one. Look in a mirror. Third, tidy up the background and remember that everyone is definitely judging you on your tea mug and your paint colour. But don't show off. Read the room, people. Your team do not want to see you hot desking in a poolside cabana and your NCT group doesn't need to know that you recreate the baby cinema experience in your home screening room. Daffodils on the kitchen table, a yoga mat jammed down the back of the sofa is just about the right pitch. A small child appearing for a brief cameo is ideal cuteness plus relatability vibes. God, I enjoyed that. God, I haven't been thinking about any of this. No, but I think for some people who do spend five, six hours a day on Zoom and also need to look nice for their work or... I imagine if you work in the beauty industry as well, you probably feel I don't know like you want to get your lighting right you know that's your kind of artistry isn't it 
I don't really know. Yeah, no, I totally understand as well why you'd want to. It's just, I'm actually more, I'm actually more just panicking about how probably every meeting that I've had since lockdown, people have been speaking to like five of my chins. (laughs) I have not been positioning the laptop. No, well, if you look right now, I've positioned myself in it. Am I as ghostly white on your screen as I am on mine? Yeah, you look like a light bulb. Yeah, there's some, I don't know where my light is. You look, you look like you've put a pair of glasses on a light bulb. <laughs> That's nice. That would insinuate that I'm lit up from within. You are. And if anyone has any spare books, not weird books they hated, books they like, books they think make a good read, books that they feel proud to pass on, Books Left in Stations is an initiative which aims to provide free books for key workers in stations that are close to hospitals and key transport links. Ebook and audio purchases and home book deliveries might not be affordable or accessible to everyone at the moment. Libraries and charity shops are currently closed. Obviously, that's shitty for everyone, but at the moment, it's only key workers using stations. And as a support for all the incredible work they're doing, it is a lovely idea to think that they might have some reading material. It's only in a few stations at the moment, but its creator, a manager from the publisher headline, hopes to get it going in more and more. And then post-pandemic, the scheme will exist, hopefully, as a place for free book donations, similar to that which exists in Arsenal Station. She's currently looking for people to donate books which can be posted to her and then she works to get them into the relevant stations during the lockdown period more info can be found like where to send your book at booksinstations.co.uk and i will link that in the show notes on the subject of posting books as well I'm sure I'm not the only person who's found that their local post office has shut. And what I discovered is you can fit a book in a post box slot, a medium sized book. You can just about get it in, in a A4 Jiffy bag and it will get there within the UK with five second class stamps. I'm not sure abroad, unfortunately, although I did paste an entire book of stamps onto a book package for my friend who lives in France last week just like willy-nilly used all the stamps I had and I just hope it gets there in 2024. But I'm a really big fan of sending books and I think it's a nice thing that you can do at the moment if you wanted to with friends without clogging up post offices with non-essential packages. I mean, I think most post office queues are about two hours at the moment and um, that doesn't feel like quite the right thing perhaps to be adding to the queue, but you can pop a book in the post box easily um to friends or pop one in the post box to books and stations lovely idea hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank linkedin helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role in a given month over 70 percent of linkedin users don't even visit other leading job sites So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. What you been enjoying, aside from Cloudy Bay? (laughs) I was completely hooked on a four-part documentary 
uh, last week about the life and the music of Frank Sinatra, which is on BBC iPlayer and is called All or Nothing at All. Everyone who watched it was giving just across the board rave reviews, and rightly so. It's a really, really well-made series. It opens with uh, Sinatra's retirement concert that he gave in 1971, uh, which was meant to be his sort of farewell to music, but he ended up, this always sort of happens when someone does a retirement concert, he ended up actually singing for many years afterwards, right up to his death, in fact. But the retirement concert was very famous and it was a very kind of emotional night in which he sang a selection of his of his best love songs that tell the story of his life. And the footage of this is kind of interspersed throughout the documentary that tells the story of his life and his very long and varied career. And it really was so, so varied from the beginning as a kind of Bobby Soxer heartthrob pop star. It goes to his his kind of career as a Hollywood movie star and then a serious actor and then a serious musician and arguably the creator of the first concept albums. So it goes through all those different stages. And then it also obviously looks at his personal life, his family life, um, his love life, his love of Ava Gardner, which is a love story that I'm absolutely fascinated by. Um, And there are another couple who managed to ace it and stay friends, which I just think is like the most beautiful thing. And I went into such a such a kind of Google hole afterwards about their relationship. And Ava Gardner just completely broke his heart. And yet when she was ill near the end of her life, I think sort of 30 years after they got divorced, he paid for her to go see a, a medical specialist. It's just like, I find that so moving. The programme also looks at his political affiliations and his life as an activist. It looks at what he did for his fellow musicians who were black and how he was one of the first white mainstream big commercial artists to take a a very public stand against racism. And then interestingly, what the programme makers also include is something of a puzzle about Sinatra, which was why he did so many racist jokes on stage with Sammy Davis Jr. as part of uh, the kind of Rat Pack shtick which is an important hypocrisy to note just and, and I'm glad they did they did note it not just for kind of factual record but I think it shows how misunderstood racism was at the time and what constituted racism and arguably I think that is still a problem to this day and I'm glad they didn't deify Sinatra to an extent that is untruthful and look at the fact that he was so theoretically opposed to racism and ostensibly so committed to to help end racism, but thought nothing of of mocking a black man who was his friend and, you know, supposedly in on the joke. So that's a kind of more uncomfortable side of the story that they tell. There's also an extraordinary story that I won't spoil, um, but it's about his affiliations with uh, Kennedy and how Sinatra used his kind of mafia connections to allegedly help Kennedy win the election and how he was ultimately kind of deeply betrayed by the president and it was his like deepest betrayal of his life Uh, as you can probably hear I'm a massive Sinatra fan and I have been since I was really really little but I learned so much about him that I didn't already know one of which was just what a grafter he was how hard he worked how ambitious he was uh, how motivated and kind of lateral thinking he was when it came to his work and being creative and being enterprising. An example of this is there's this amazing duet with Sinatra and Elvis that I've watched so many times before, but I didn't know the history of. 
Elvis was just beginning his meteoric success and Sinatra's was sort of tailing off and his audience was changing. And uh, Sinatra hated rock and roll music, but he decided to do a duet on television with Elvis singing one of his biggest hits, Witchcraft, and Sinatra singing one of Elvis's biggest hits, Love Me Tender. Love me tender, love me sweet, never let me go. You have made my life complete, and I love you so. Those fingers in my hair. It was a really clever move for him to doff his cap to the younger generation's new heartthrob, the man who had sort of usurped him. And that was not only a kind of symbolic gesture, but also just a a really kind of clever one as well. So I really understood in this programme what an entrepreneurial grafter he was and lord knows i love a grafter so i loved that how wonderfully interesting he also stayed good friends with mia farrow didn't he oh did he that wouldn't surprise me she speaks in it she's one of the narrators in it god that was an interesting relationship a very short-lived marriage and a very interesting relationship well a short-lived marriage and then obviously she went on to marry Woody Allen but then there are rumours aren't there that Ronan Farrow is Sinatra's son so if that's the case then they would have reunited what, 30, 25 years after their marriage mm. in order to have him so he um, obviously was very good which I imagine was very rare in men of that time who probably didn't have a lot of female friends they probably either dated women or married women or divorced women yeah. I think it's very interesting, isn't it, that he maintained relationships with these women when he was no longer with them. Maybe it's sort of testament to his charisma as well, that idea that you, people must always remain in your orbit. Italian loyalty, perhaps. I know having Italian relatives that they're incredibly loyal, but just don't piss them off. <laughs> <laughs> I also loved Quiz. Panda, have you watched Quiz? Yeah, it was brilliant. It was... Um, I couldn't believe how young Charles Ingram was. Oh, how young was he? Because I remember him. He was 38. I remember him watching him and thinking he was like a colonel in his 50s. He's five years older than me when he sits there in his multicoloured polo. <laughs> that polo shirt... So for anyone who hasn't watched it, it's an ITV dramatisation of the real-life story of Charles and Diana Ingram. And Charles Ingram was uh, convicted of cheating on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire in 2001 after winning the biggest prize that you could win of a million pounds. The programme is so well cast. Michael Sheen plays Chris Tarrant. And at this point, Michael Sheen is less actor and more just like zelig shapeshifter transformer it's just astonishing how he can impersonate and take on the mannerisms and voice and energy of of a person uh, from real life it's like it, it's so hypnotic to watch matthew mcfadden is brilliant as charles ingram and sean clifford is so good at diana ingram i think the writing is just pitch perfect the tone of it was really really funny as well as I found desperately sad in parts and it somehow tells the story from 
from all sides because Charles and Diana Ingram still say they're innocent to this day and the drama somehow tells the story from all these sides and leaves it up to the viewer to decide who is telling the truth and do you know what I actually the reason I loved it so much is it really made me think about the nature of quizzes and quizzing both on TV and in pub quizzes and quizzes in the family home and why it's such a kind of British hobby and institution and it made me think about I do think getting information right is such an important like a weirdly important part of British conversation I was thinking about like what a currency that can carry in the family home growing up when you have someone at the table saying right what is the river you know the crispiest potato goes to the person who can tell me what the river, the name of the river going through Bristol is or whatever. It's such a like, it's such a British thing, this kind of obsession with, with kind of facts. And, and I think that that's why quiz was so interesting is it goes beyond just this story. It looks at the idea of knowledge as a commodity and kind of, and kind of a very British sensibility, I think. So interesting you say that because I enjoyed it, I think, for a different reason, which is I loved that it didn't mock them. It didn't patronise them. And actually, you, they, they were shown, Charles and Diana, to have a very loving, strong marriage. And there were some really tender scenes as well. Um, and it absolutely humanised them. And I agree with you. It's left up to you to decide if they did it. And I just, I just don't see how they could have. But... I'd never thought of it as a British institution. I just thought of it as like a familial um, tradition. But it, yeah, I guess it's something that's replicated in um, a lot of other families. Yeah, it really made me think as well about, like, you know, everyone I know at the moment, every night is doing a quiz on Zoom with their friends. Why have we defaulted to quizzing this idea of in an uncertain time, what we want is facts. We want, how do we be right? What's wrong? What's right? It's something, maybe it's about the British thing about rules and an order, that something about question and answer, quiz master and player, it gives us a sense of order, perhaps, that that we need. And and actually, it's 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 so different to other cultures where you know when we think about what we're told about French conversation, be it in the family or be it in a social situation, is that it's about challenging each other and it's about going into the more ambiguous questions of of philosophy or politics it's not so much about like what is the capital of blah blah what is the color of this what is the pronunciation of that but for some reason it just fascinates me I find it like weirdly adorable why is it that we need that so much it's kind of crazy to remember that at its peak 19 million people watched who wants to be a millionaire like the budget yeah. for that program was vast. Yeah. It never would have been able to go now. Um, yeah. But I, I had always just been convinced. And I watched it. I, I watched that show. I watched Judith Keppel winning as well. Um, I winning her million. One. And I was always convinced at the time that he was guilty. But watching the very persuasive barrister played by Helen McCrory you start to wonder how on earth they could be guilty if they'd never met Tequan Whittock and he had an uncontrollable cough. How would they know when he was coughing on the right? I don't know. Did it make you doubt? Did it make you think they might be innocent? 
It, yeah, yeah. I like. I've got no defi- like. I've got no final answer, Pandora. To use the parlance. No, neither do I. <laughs> if he wants to be a millionaire, I, I was left completely unsure of, of what happened. It, but in, a, in not in an unsatisfying way. I just I, I could see lots of different versions of that story could be true. The poet Even Boland sadly passed away this week. So I was having a look at some of her poetry this morning. And her poem, Quarantine, is doing the rounds for obvious reasons. It's impactful and moving, but it's also quite desolate. So in the spirit of keeping, well, spirits up, I thought I would read this moment, which is a gentle reminder that things still happen when they're out of sight. Changes are incremental rather than visible. Nature does not stop, even when the world feels like it's paused. A neighbourhood at dusk. Things are getting ready to happen out of sight. Stars and moths and rhymes slanting around fruit. But not yet. One tree is black. One tree is yellow as butter. A woman leans down to catch a child, who has run into her arms this moment. Stars rise. Moths flutter. Apples sweeten in the dark. Oh, I love that. And I love, I love what it kind of says about the adamants of spring. I personally have found real moments of comfort in, in just being reminded that that nature kind of pushes on, um, spring pushes on despite the world kind of falling apart in, in various ways. There's something that's incredibly reassuring about that. It's kind of crazy, isn't it, to watch it forging on? Um, yeah. Something else that I sought great comfort from this week was Breathing Lessons which is a novel by Anne Tyler and it's often included in the 100 best novel lists she's often referred to as a contemporary Jane Austen um, Anne Tyler won a Pulitzer for Breathing Lessons Um, but I had never read any of her, have you read any Anne Tyler Dolly? No I haven't I haven't I wonder, my older sister, who's 15 years older than me, is a massive Anne Tyler fan, and I wonder if she was almost for them what, I don't know, maybe like Sadie Smith is for us? But I think Anne Tyler was probably very widely read by women about 20 years older than us, and that's not to say she's not widely read by our age, don't get me wrong, but she's not someone that I have spoken about with friends before, so... um, I only discovered Breathing Lessons when I was looking through my bookshelves at books I hadn't read yet because I often forget about secondhand books that I buy. I'll have a list of books always in my head that I'm wanting to buy and read that came out ages ago and then when I find one in a charity shop uh, or eBay I put them on my bookshelf and I often forget about them but I realised I was playing a slightly kind of cat and mouse game just reading endless new releases or soon to be new releases and whilst that's wonderful because it means you can kind of join in like national discourse and there's lots of dialogue on that book it meant I had neglected lots of secondhand books that I bought that I'd been wanting to read for ages so I turned back to my bookshelves and I dug into breathing lessons and it's a very gentle but um clever and nuanced book about a woman called Maggie Moran who is nearing 50 she lives in Baltimore which is where all of Anne Tyler's books are set is where Anne herself lives and she has two grown-up children and it tells the story of well her life and her husband's life and her marriage 
through the course of one day. And it really hit the spot and it filled also at the same time, like very unlike the kind of literature I'm reading now. Um, It came out in 1988, so 32 years ago. And it does feel old, um, not in a way that means you can't still glean insight and lessons, but it does feel like it's written in a different time, which it which it is, it was over 30 years ago. And then I also found a second-hand copy um, of The Wonder Spot, which is a book, I think I mentioned to you, Dolly, by Melissa Bank, because The Girl's Guide to Hunting and Fishing is one of our absolute favourites, isn't it, Dolly? Yeah, exactly. And The Wonder Spot was written in 2005, so again, it came out a little while ago, and I'd bought a copy of this on eBay because I loved her other book. And it's so interesting. She only ever wrote two books. Both of these are so revered, although probably not household names in the way you'd expect them to be, given um, how incredibly they've been reviewed. Anyway, you will absolutely love The Wonder Spot, Dolly. It's about um, a little girl called Sophie Applebaum, who is growing up in New York and um, she's about to have her bat mitzvah and she doesn't really want one and it follows her going to Hebrew school and it follows her family um, and all of the relationships and it's tender and witty and moving but what both of these books had in common which was just exactly what I needed was they were uh, really comforting and both mm. of these um, I'm still reading The Wonder Spot but both of these were brilliant and actually on that note I really recommend eBay for buying secondhand books I know lots of people have been a bit lost about where to buy secondhand books from at this time um, because retailers uh, have got very long delays um, and of course charity shops are shut and there's just tons of independent sellers selling secondhand books through eBay. And because, like me, they can just pop a book into the letterbox, they don't need to, you know, they don't need to rely on a courier service or the um, or going to a post office. So it's a really good good way to buy uh, secondhand books at the moment. That's yeah. my latest book recommendation. And on the podcast front, loads of people creating good lockdown content have you seen a real surge in um new podcast style yes i've just started listening to Catherine ryan's one which is a new podcast that i think she's developed in lockdown which mm. is very very good okay i'll check that one out and the cleverly named grounded with louis theroux for bbc radio 4 has landed he's only dropped one episode so far but it's really good it's it's very louis through inquisitive and gently confident and it's interesting hearing him on audio I've only ever heard him on a podcast I think probably Adam Buxton's one I'm so used to seeing his voice if that makes sense he has a voice to be seen whereas alternately I think that John Ronson who he's interviewing has a voice to be heard does that make any sense no I know what you mean I associate Louis Theroux with kind of his voice with seeing his face I think it's probably because of the formats by which we know them. Anyway, in this first episode, he interviews John Ronson, who is a writer. He wrote um, what I think is probably one of the most powerful books about um, uh, cancel culture. It kind of really preempted cancel culture, actually. It's So You've Been Publicly Shamed, and it talks about the role of uh, shame in society and how we now use public shaming to... Um, 
kind of dish out what we see as as moral guidings on on life and and how pervasive and how dangerous that is anyway his book is amazing it's also really good on audiobook he's done lots of other very good work as well but this covered the small and the big so seamlessly like everything from the argument that louis and his wife had because he ate the alarm because he ate the last avocado and she was hungry. And then to the notion of conspiracy theorists, John shares some really interesting insights into possibly the most famous contemporary conspiracy theorist who he's interviewed, Alex Jones. And then they go on to the competitive individualism of North America and how that shapes how the states responds to a pandemic, uh, social inequities, the idea of remaking society. And they discuss whether collective good will prevail or whether things will just go back to normal. So it's it's wide-ranging and it's realistic, but it's not in an anxiety-making way. I really wouldn't be recommending it if it was, because I'm having to be very yeah. careful about my consumption of things at the moment. And I just really love how equitable they are in talking about these really loaded subjects. It's um, It's really brilliant listening. And I kind of wish that they were going to do the whole podcast together rather than John just being his first episode I mean I'm sure the next the next lot will be great as well but I'd really love to hear more especially when they start talking about the way they work so Louis talks about the documentary The Most Hated Family in America and of course we had Megan Phelps Roper onto the high low to talk about when she left the church and Louis talks about how he gets that balance of kind of ensconcing himself in their world in order to really tell their story without encouraging them so for example when he witnessed them picketing he said he would get a ride with them if it was offered but he would never drive them so he would never facilitate their behavior and I think it's that delicate dance of being this non-objective documentarian and him and John Ronson both do it really well so it was a it was just a complete pleasure that podcast to listen to I think what I always recognize about their attitudes that you've pointed out, Pandora, which is the same as when I meet anyone super clever, is they're both just really non-judgmental. I think they're just not in the business of judgment. I think they're in the business of understanding. What have you been enjoying, Ultimate Podcat? I listened to the Eat, Pray, Love episode of Sentimental Garbage, which I'm not sure if I've talked about on the show before, but it's so 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 good and it's a podcast that's very much up the street of our high low listeners sentimental garbage is hosted by the author and journalist caroline o'donoghue and she does a very deep dive into a piece of culture in every episode uh, with a guest who's a fellow fan and this piece of culture is i think it began as chiclet it is often chiclet but mainly it's just culture that has been diminished in some way And the conversations are so compelling, really analytical, as well as often being very funny and celebratory and full of passion. And it's just the perfect audio companion for culture geeks. The Eat, Pray, Love episode is my favourite I've heard so far. And in it, Caroline speaks with Abigail Bergstrom, who's a publisher and a literary agent. And they talk about Elizabeth Gilbert's 2006 memoir, why it became so culturally important, why it's such an important book for millions and millions and millions of women, and why it's sometimes sort of dismissed in public discourse. There's so much 
good, good, good stuff in this conversation. It's packed with wisdom and new ways of thinking about the book and about memoir as a genre as well. I particularly enjoyed their talk about how God featured in the book um, and how hard that is to talk about. Spirituality is so hard to talk about. It's so personal and it's so abstract. And she nailed it. Like Elizabeth Gilbert, this is what Caroline says in this. She just hits the nail on the head. Elizabeth Gilbert is like a really well-respected, really, really clever, well-read Manhattan woman. And somehow she takes us on a spiritual journey, not for a chapter, for a huge, huge, huge portion of this book. And you are just with her every step of the way. And it takes, it's it's like such a difficult thing to do. And no one else has done it in such a translatable way, I think. And making modern people think about their relationship with God and what God is and how God features in our daily life and where God exists, that is a big demand of people in the mid-noughties to go on that journey with you in a kind of uncynical, open-hearted way. And they also look at Elizabeth Gilbert herself, both as a kind of inspirational heroine and a reminder to ourselves of our own flaws. And they also don't shy away in the conversation of talking about travel writing and writing about other cultures as a white middle-class Western writer and all the various complications that can come Mm. with that. Yeah, I think that's really interesting is we definitely need to have the ability, and I do feel like it's been lost a little bit in modern times, to um, recognise something as really seminal and really important and really well done without it needing to resonate 100% with us. Yes. Like, I, I didn't love, eat, pray, love, but I recognise it as a seminal book, I think, she did something which hadn't been done before and I can completely understand why it became an absolute bible for a lot of women and how many urgent themes she covered in it and I think that's interesting you're right it's become a bit of a it's it's become a bit of a slur hasn't it someone will say oh you know she's like an eat pray love type of woman yoga mats travels to Costa Rica definitely white middle class obviously when anything's reduced to a cliche like that you sort of lose any kind of nuance don't you and the fact is is that as you say she didn't just like break up with someone get sad go on holiday and write like a poolside beach diary she wrote what is considered to be an incredibly like globally important book for so many people yeah yeah, and they and they go into that as well. They go into it's interesting what you said about how it's kind of it can be used as kind of a, a bit of a slur now sometimes. Um, and they go into and that's the whole point of sentimental garbage, really, is kind of un, unpicking how that happens and why that is. It's a really good podcast episode, maybe one of my favourites I've listened to in a really, 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 really long time. I wanted to insert a clip from a conversation they had about soulmates. And what Abigail and Caroline learned about the idea of soulmates from the book that I was listening to on my government-sanctioned daily constitutional and hearing this section quite literally stopped me in my tracks and 
I'm not ashamed to say, made me burst into tears. You're not meant to end up with your soulmates. Your soulmates are meant to come in. They're meant to break your ego, push down your boundaries, rip you apart and show you something about yourself. They're meant to teach you something. Like there's this kind of um, obsession with being with your soulmate. And he's just like, no, you're not meant to be with your soulmate. Your soulmates are sent to fuck your life up. is a mirror. They're a mirror. Yeah, they're a mirror. And they're meant to break you down. And, and And in doing that, you learn something about yourself which fundamentally changes the way that you live and that's like what they're sent to do and you like the person you end up with is you know somebody that you love but it's not a soulmate yeah and I just love that I, I think that's I like a fantastic so idea so true I, I think these like extreme loves or infatuation or the relationships that sometimes hurt us the most really cast us into something new and then when you're in a relationship kind of that's maybe meant to be, you know, more long term or somebody that m- might be a forever person, um, it's more like, you know, two puzzles coming together. Right. Where they slot in as opposed to a mirror where you're like, whoa, you're, re-, you know, that's I think that is it's so it makes so much sense to me kind yeah. of thing. Because, like, of course, you can't stay with someone whose job in life is to reflect your Unless you're like into self harm, like yeah, well he's like that's yeah, like to reflect being the your, worst things about you. Totally. Yeah, being with your soulmate is just painful. Why would you want that? Yeah, but oh, also, it's such a good. Isn't it interesting? Like the mirror, I, the mirror kind of idea because it's like you say, it's reflecting back the most kind of awful things about yourself. But also, it's like this infatuation is also with yourself. Like it's yeah. not just you falling in love with that person. It's like you falling in love with a version of you. It really is that. Which I think what in fact you know that's what everyone's done that is. at least once, haven't yeah, they? For yeah, sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you got any journalism to recommend this week, Panda? Yes, I loved a piece written by Charlie Brinkhurst-Cuff on her parents getting married after a 40-year relationship. She wrote it for an online... I know, me too. She wrote it for an online publisher called Tortoise. It launched in 2018 and their tagline is for slower, wiser media, which I think is an extremely needed endeavour right now. And I'll link in the show notes and check out more of their content anyway charlie's piece so yeah it's about her parents getting married after 40 years and she had always just assumed that they were not into marriage or against it and she found them getting married not only something she hadn't expected but she felt really daunted by what to buy them she writes i wanted to get them both something to celebrate the occasion to fulfill the deep millennial itch i have to live out fairy tales and make things experiential special but how do you pick out parents for people who are unmistakably cooler than you and not polite enough to lie about liking their gifts um i just found it such a joyous read and I love the idea of after four decades, them choosing to get married, you know, just clearly to do things completely on their own terms. So loved that. And I absolutely loved a piece by Raven Smith for The Observer magazine titled My Dad Always Told Me That I Wasn't Black Enough. Now, at last, I know what he really meant. I think there are often preconditions that come with talking about fractured identity particularly when it concerns race and class. I think people can be scared that they aren't writing about trauma, right or or identity in the right way. And they are unsurprisingly febrile topics. And what I loved about this piece by Raven is the lyricism and the lightness of touch and the nuance that he brings to the literary 
quest for identity specifically the piece is about his blackness and his relationship with his father who did not think that raven was quote unquote black enough and it's something that raven says lightly tinkles on the piano of his mind even as he acquires the trappings of a middle class life has he squeezed himself into the role of the palatable black man to make those in the predominantly white social circles that he mixes in more comfortable The piece is so much better read in Raven's voice, not mine. So here is Raven reading an extract. My dad said it to me when I was seven years old and it stung like vinegar on a paper cut. Of all the things you throw at kids, you never know which ones will stick. This one accidentally stuck. I'm not black enough. The phrase, the unblackness, was planted and developed like an irksome bruise I can only feel when I bend a certain way. Its scar tissue formed from acid poured into my wound after I was hit by the paternal truck of not black enoughness, an unexploded bomb that's leaking mustard gas into my blood. I'm fully grown now, but the comment still tinkles lightly on the piano of my mind. Whiteness is in my blood, well, half of it. My mum's never done an ancestry DNA test, but as a woman from North London who regularly burns in the British sun, it's safe to assume she's majority Caucasian. Brighton is inherently liberal, but how come your mum's white and you're not was the power ballad of my childhood. Luckily, each peer-to-peer microaggression that questioned my identity actually fortified my sense of self. Sorry to go a tad Oprah, but they were all learning experiences en route to the slightly too self-assured man I've become. I call it public school confidence without the fees. I'll link that in the show notes. I think it's my favourite thing that Raven's ever written. His brilliant, bonkers book of essays, which are about things like the contents of his fridge, perfect, quite frankly, for lockdown, um, is called Trivial Pursuits, and that is out now. The Sunday Times describes him as Instagram's answer to David Sedaris. Panda, I am gagging to know, have you been watching Normal People? I watched the first two episodes last night and I was dying to watch the rest, but it just got too late. Take it slow, take it slow. I binged it, regret it. (laughs) It's like Tiger King all over again. Very similar shows, actually. (laughs) It's like, it's funny and sad and sweet and sexy. And then I went, this morning, I went on to see what, people have been saying about it on social media and the top tweets really made me laugh the well actually the first tweet i thought was really important the normal people consent scene should be screened in every high school and uni class in the world i think that's a fucking great idea connor says if you want to stop or anything we can obviously stop if it hurts or anything we can stop it won't be awkward i know it was very beautiful that scene but then the others made me laugh Bit fucking cheeky of them to release normal people in the middle of a pandemic that prevents physical intimacy, wasn't it? Because yeah. it's a saucy show. And then the next one that came up on my timeline, so I haven't been on Twitter for a little bit, is normal people will make you cry, make you horny, make you obsess over all your past relationships, which is a refreshing change from the emotions of lockdown. And that was tweeted on April the 27th by Dolly Horndog Alderton. What a legend. <laughs> I loved it. I thought it was very beautifully done. I wish I'd eked it out. A bit more, to be honest. I didn't need to watch the whole thing in two days. It was pretty intense. It's quite heavy going. Maybe it's just because we've got so much time to think at the moment. And it is a kind of very nostalgic show. But everyone I know who's done what I've done and binge watched it has felt a bit, 
oof at the end I think binge watching in general is something to try where possible and avoid resist if you feel like it's not serving you that's the crucial difference if you're someone that feels great when they binge watch stuff go for it if you don't which I don't that's why I'm trying to be take it a little bit slower but I think what I loved about it is it is you know it's a quirky kooky book like Sally Rooney herself has said like she never thought she'd be adapting this for on screen. She never thought it would work on screen. It's like, it's a very lingering looks and slightly strange dialogue. And it is testament, I think, to Daisy Edgar-Jones and Paul Meskell that it works on screen. Because I've always thought that Sally Rooney's books would be fantastic as plays. Yeah, I have to say, I do think it's a very difficult book to adapt because just like so many young people. Basically, the the premise of that book is it's about two people who love each other but are miscommunicating. That's like one of the main threads of the book, that they're not, they're missing each other and they're not, they're not communicating properly with each other and things are misunderstood. And I don't mean that sound diminishing. It's obviously about lots of other things as well, but that was one of the things that really kind of rang true for me and really reminded me of what those younger relationships are like. So their, their language with each other is often so sparse and it's often in the things that that go unsaid that's where the kind of weight of of their meaning is and I think what's so difficult is that's fascinating in on the page because you have the intricacies of their thoughts but you obviously can't have the intricacies of their thoughts on screen because you're not we can't access their heads so we have to kind of see what's in their heads through their acting. I am sounding so hungover. This is def- This is like, you know, Ian McKellen on Extras when he describes to Ricky Gervais's character about what acting is. <laughs> How do I act so well? What I do is I pretend to be the person I'm portraying in the film or play. I just love that I'm literally explaining that the reason the actors are good is they make their thoughts clear on their face fucking hell basically i think it's but i think a... that's what they did um i think that's what they did well is those those pregnant pauses like particularly for the character of connell i mean as i said i have i'm sorry I only watched two episodes thus far but he he leaves a lot unsaid which is obviously you know it being um truthful to to the book and she says near the beginning you know when they're first getting together or there are there are loads of prettier girls than me at school who want you and he doesn't say anything back he just kisses her and that's there's like a tension in that he 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 doesn't reassure her and then of course 10 minutes later he says well I think you're really pretty by the way I just I think there's a sparseness and I think there's an originality to their characters Um, And obviously it's not like she's completely rewritten the trope of people falling in love for the first time. But there is a there's a cruelty and there's a tenderness that is already set up um, by Daisy and Paul from the off. And I just I don't think that's easy. And I think that's really like testament to their chemistry. I can't wait to watch the rest. Yeah, it's it's really, really good. It's really impressive. Very impressive person, Sally Rooney. I'm very impressed and also very jealous. You sound like Ian McKellen again. Should we do some Master Hilo? 
Our first question is about birthdays during the pandemic. Do you have any advice for celebrating a birthday during pandemic at the Disco Times? I shall be turning 30 in just under a month, and although never overly fussed with birthdays and huge celebrations, have always enjoyed marking significant ones. I live with my boyfriend and expect that we will still be in some form of lockdown then. P. Diddley. I've seen some people doing some amazingly creative things um, in the last week. Um, A friend's sister got married on zoom and all the rest of her family yeah so she's in her white dress and her husband's in a suit and then all their family well those whoever's you know in lockdown with whoever are all dressed up like properly dressed up to the nines like got a glass of champagne um and you know they do a wedding via zoom and then i saw uh, another friend doing her baby shower via zoom Mm, and she's got some balloons that spell out baby and she's got a cake and she's wearing a beautiful sexy dress and you know all of her friends did like a zoom baby shower and um i mean obviously you have to get creative like you have to put some effort in but um lots of people are are doing lots of stuff aren't they i think i've uh friends i actually haven't had any close friends who have had a birthday and wanted to do something less that i can think of but um my sister had a 50th and she they were all on zoom for like five hours she sent me a video at one point of her playing the piano so obviously the zoom got really musical I just think there are so many of course it's not the same but if you want to there are um I mean quite zoom dependent let's be honest yeah but there are some lovely things that you can um do probably just putting on a nice dress and slapping on some makeup would be quite fun yeah, I'm with Panda. I've heard I've heard lots of, of people being kind of really creative with with what they're doing on Zoom. So, so some things that I've heard people like groups of friends have been doing which I think could be fun for a birthday. I know a group of friends where they all decided that they they were all assigned a film or a TV show, famous film or TV show, and they all had to like act out and they all did it really like brilliantly and properly, like a three minute short film, act out what that scene was. And then they did like a screening of all of them on the Zoom and everyone had to guess what it was. There's like, you know, do a pub quiz, but make every single question about you and your life. <laughs> if you're a narcissist like me, that would be a fun birthday. Um, there's I've seen I've heard about people who are doing Desert Island Discs with all their friends spending an evening uh sitting around putting together a playlist of you know the three tracks that are most important to you and then all sitting and playing them and hearing why that's so important to you um I've got another friend who did a royal variety show the other day with like 30 mates and they all had five minutes where they sang a song or they danced or they did a bit of like stand up or you know whatever I think there are so many things that you can do and everyone who I'm I've got loads of mates who've got birthdays during this time and everyone who I love who's got a birthday during this time, I just want to do anything I can to try and make it fun for them. And I'm sure that there will be loads of people in your life who will be who will want to kind of uh, get creative. Definitely give, definitely tell them that's what you would like. Don't feel embarrassed about that. Say, this is going to be the night of my birthday. I would love, if you would like to, I would all love for you to think of your Desert Island Discs or get out your flute and clarinet (laughs) um and 
yeah, people have, you know, we're all gagging for tasks and activities now, even me. And I'm very activity averse. But also, if you don't want to do a big thing with friends or your friends don't have time or are going through stuff, which you think means that they wouldn't be able to do that, because that is wonderful, but it can be quite logistics and time heavy. Even just, I know this sounds really, really simple, but um, it was my wedding anniversary the other day and we ordered like a really delicious Mexican takeaway and we opened a bottle of champagne that we were given when our son was born and I laid out all our nicest um, cutlery and plates and a tablecloth and we put on some Frank Sinatra and it was really nice. I still did oh, look rough. I didn't put... I did not slap on the makeup or put on a nice dress. I'm not going to lie. I think I was wearing a big tie-dyed t-shirt with my tie-dyed tracksuit bottoms. But fuck it, the rest was the rest was really nice. Um, oh, so so nice. it is a shitty time to have a thirtieth. I'm sorry, but you will be able to celebrate at some point. You know, you will, you will, you will yeah. be able to have a knees up. We just don't know when it is yet. Yeah. Here's another question. My question is. Ah, yeah, this is a great one. There's a lot Mm. of tension, I think, on this one. What do you think about the attitude towards productivity in these weird times of lockdown? There seems to be quite a split in attitude between the people encouraging us to take things day by day and those who keep bringing up that Shakespeare wrote King Lear in quarantine from the plague. (laughs) Just wondered if you had any thoughts on that. Dolly. Uh, First of all, one of our caveats that we love to make it clear, you know, the idea of productivity might be a luxury for a lot of people. It might be that you don't have time to work out a plan of how to use this time to be productive because you just need to get your job done or you need to survive or you need to look after your family or your parents or you need to be working. That you know, that's totally fine. If that's what your daily life looks like, then the idea of like productivity, I think, doesn't even need to be called into question I don't think it really needs to be called into question for anyone because I think the notion of productivity is so different person to person for some people spending your evenings reading a book or watching a film or doing some kind of admin that you've been putting off for a long time that's a highly highly productive evening and that's totally fine I think it's different person to person and I think just don't put pressure on yourself I think it's like I think we've all just got to take it really easy on ourselves and each other I definitely put way too much pressure on myself at the beginning of this period of thinking how can I you know get loads and loads and loads of stuff done or start new projects there was like at the beginning of lockdown I definitely was like right I should be starting a daily newsletter or I should be doing 15 minute broadcasts every day or I should be doing and I really like I even like emailed a web designer being like could you could you help me set up a newsletter and then (laughs) I slept on it and I was like no, I don't need to do that. And I, d- I don't, I've got loads of other stuff that I wanted to do. And here's one of the things that I wanted to do that I've been doing that is for me very productive. I've been listening to albums again, which I haven't done since I was in my early 20s, where I get an album, some of my favourite albums, put it on and just don't, uninterrupted, top to tail it, lie in my bed, sip a little cloudy bay, sure, 
that's not a crime. And I love that because people, yeah. we, do, we jump around now, don't we, because of Spotify and stuff. Exactly. So for me, that's a really productive activity. And then what I do is I, this is a bit more geeky, but then I sit in my notebook that I've just started of albums and I write down uh, all my favourite tracks on them and keep a list of all my favourite albums. So that's just like an example of something. I'm very lucky. I do have time in the evenings that are f- that's free. And for me, that's been productive. Very rambly answer. Don't know if I gave you much there. Pandora, you'll be better, I think. No, I absolutely won't. I think I just really identify and wholeheartedly agree with what you're saying about how... I think because now we are in... I've actually lost concept of time. Is it week six of lockdown or week five? Week, week six, I think. Um, you know, it's been a significant amount of time and so your attitudes might change in that time and um whereas at the beginning I definitely felt like galvanized to do all this stuff I'm I'm now just kind of of the opinion that you just want to get through it and you want to get through it as best you can uh with as many people around you as happy as possible yeah I wouldn't worry too much about productivity because Productivity is a word that we really use to beat ourselves with. It's just become a new buzzword. And I mean, what does it bloody mean? You know, it's another way of describing how we spend time. It's another word in which we use to value ourselves or the work we do or the work of other people around us. So I think don't look at productivity as a word. Look at what's making me feel good. So rather than me thinking I could be more productive because I I don't necessarily have a huge amount of disposable time at the moment. What I think I could do is I could probably be more disciplined and not in a way that serves anyone other than myself. Like, I would like to be doing an online exercise class every day if I can. Mm. I could Mm. definitely fit that in. I have not been prioritising it. I've never been very good at prioritising that, but I know it would make me feel good. So Mm. uh, fuck productivity, um, unless it's getting your work done, then of course that's really important to try and do that because employment is a stressful thing particularly right now but as for how you're spending your time just try and be really clear-headed about what is serving you and what isn't and the stuff that isn't put it to the side even if it feels quite radical I've definitely had to do some things that like don't come naturally to me recently and um and then the things that make you good you know try and kick yourself up your own ass to try and do them literally even if it's something as simple as doing PE with Joe Wicks but don't worry about productivity don't worry about not writing King Lear don't worry if your bathroom's a bit grubby it's fine it's all good it'll all come out in the wash wise words little guru thank you for listening to the high low uh please do get in touch with us we love to hear from you we are the high low show at gmail.com we are at the high low show on twitter and we are going to leave you with a lush track from tom misha's new album which was out last week and you should definitely lie on your bed tonight and play it from top to bottom bye-bye bye
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl. Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.